I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4 and verse 32. If you're visiting with us, my name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastor's elders here at the church, and we're very grateful that you're here. God is uh, doing something special in our midst, and uh, we're always glad when new people want to come along and the Lord leads them to be a part of it. So welcome, and I hope you get to know some people. We're a pretty friendly group, as you can tell from our greeting time. And so uh, we're going to seek you out, we're going to pursue you, and we're going to see how the Lord might want us to know you better and to strengthen you. We are looking at the book of Acts. I am calling this this, uh, series, The Church on Fire. And I I think there are so many parallels between the early New Testament church uh, and what the church needs to be today. And unfortunately, much of the church has gotten away from what God intended it to be. And so we always go back to the word of God to see what he thinks about uh, the church and how we should live according to his word. So we're continuing that series and uh, Pete did a great job two weeks ago uh, continuing in that study and I'm very grateful for him. He's, by the way, another one of our teachers and so is Jessica uh, Zanin, who is not here, so there, there's a few more teachers we didn't catch today, so we want to pray for them as well, but Pete did a great job two weeks ago, and then Brother Curtis did a fantastic job last week talking about what we are seeing as our spiritual DNA, seven components that we believe God has spoken into our lives and history as a church community over several decades, and those are things that we see as values, as pieces of our DNA. And if you press on us a little bit or you get into conversations with us a little bit, those things should be kind of coming out of us. They should be uh, exuding out of our life. And we continue our look today with the title of today's message of One Heart and Soul, Acts 4 and verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet." And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the apostle by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the second time in the book of Acts where we see this early Jerusalem church, the church on fire, as being beautifully described for their incredible unity. And in this case, the words are spelled out for us. They were of one heart and soul. I don't ever say the word soul without thinking of John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd from the Blues Brothers. Now, that's probably way too old for some of you, but they sing soul man and it's one of my favorite things. And I feel like if Dan Aykroyd was here today, he could be dancing behind me and we'd get some communication going on here. Polite as harmonica, but he's a soul man. Anyway, it has nothing to do with my sermon. Uh, They were of one heart and soul. Unity 
is something that that is describing. And it's oftentimes misunderstood. We think that a lot of times of it as being uniformity, and it's not. But God doesn't see it that way. He certainly designed us for unity, but he also created us in extensive diversity. And that's beautiful when you see the two working under the concert leadership of the Holy Spirit. True unity is not achieved apart from the work of his spirit. We're not unified by striving to be like somebody else, trying to be like one another, or because we've had similar experiences, maybe we think our pain and difficulty makes us unified with another if they've had a similar experience. That's not the basis of our unity. Our unity is in the spirit and it is making each of us more like Christ. A.W. Tozer said this, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, no, so 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Our unity of heart and soul is, comes from being tuned to Jesus. He is the metric. He is the plumb line. He is our standard. He is the tuning fork that is tuning each of us, not only to his perfect pitch, so that we can be in harmony with one another. This church, described here in Acts, had great unity because they were being tuned, each one of them, to Jesus. And he maintains the standard throughout church. In fact, if a church is not being the church they should be, it's because they have strayed from Jesus, not because they haven't worked hard to be unified. Jesus is the plumb line. But we also know that this verse says that they were experiencing not only great unity, but great power. Great power for giving their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His power came upon them, which enabled them and empowered them to testify that Jesus Christ, though you crucified him, he rose from the dead. And if you accept him, you will be saved from your sins and given life forevermore. Great power to do that. And then it says they were given great grace. And then it says that they were exhibiting great care and generosity for one another, sharing with one another all that they had. What a church! Great unity, great power, great grace, and great care. If I could want our church to be known for anything, it would be those four things. Great unity, great power, great grace, and great care. I want us to understand that these verses are not an endorsement of an ism like communism. A lot of people think they are. 
or Marxism or any other ism. They are not. Communism says what is yours belongs to everyone. Jesus says what is mine I freely give. It's a big difference. The sharing is not by law or legislation. It is not a mandatory compulsion for everyone to give up their possessions. It is an utterly spontaneous and spirit-led happening. It's a miracle. They were generous because they had been changed by a generous father who generously gave his son, who generously gave the spirit, who generously gave us all things and who gives us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. When you've been touched for that, by that kind of generosity, you can't help but become generous. Again, it's him tuning us up to his generosity, which makes us caring and giving and generous with one another. Throughout the New Testament, you continually see this as being a characteristic, a trait of a healthy New Testament church. Like when Paul described the church and churches in Macedonia when he was writing to the Corinthian uh, church. He said in Corinthians 8.1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have their extreme poverty. Did you catch that? And by the way, it's a severe test of affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God for us. And then down in verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This generosity, great care, is a characteristic of a church on fire. When we look back at the story in Acts, this young church had started out with just 120 people in an upper room, but now... By the time we're reading this in chapter 4, it is upwards to 10,000 or more. Yes, 10,000 or more. You see, 3,000 were added to their number on the day of Pentecost. And in chapter 4, we're told that those that believed their message were added to them, and the number was 5,000 men. Now, if you take that 5,000 men to just be a cumulative figure, still, if you add the women and kids, that's well over 10,000. But if you take the 3,000 and add the 5,000 men plus the wives and the kids, we're talking 15, 20,000 people. This is explosive kind of growth. Now, that's not always an indication of health and, and what churches should be. However, this is what God was choosing to do in this moment. And it left them with tremendous amounts of responsibility. Many were needing support, not because they were lazy or unwilling to work, 
But because to believe the gospel at that moment and choose to follow Jesus often meant a loss of livelihood and a rejection from your family. You were disowned. People wouldn't do business with you. You had no means to make a living any longer. And what about those who had traveled to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost or for the Feast of Pentecost, and they get there and they meet Jesus and they're filled with the Spirit and they follow him in baptism, and now they're added to the number. How do we take care of all these people? You see in the next chapter that there's real logistical aspects to this, but it's in this context in this explosive growth happening in this church that is on fire, that we first hear about a man named Joseph, or as he was commonly called, Barnabas. He is mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts. First here, and then in his ministry in Jerusalem, and then later in Antioch, and most, uh, most especially as a co-laborer with Saul, who became what we know as the Apostle Paul. Not became, he was. This man Barnabas was a Levite. He wasn't supposed to own land, according to the Mosaic Law, but that rule must have been relaxed by the first century, apparently. He grew up in Cyprus, which had to be the reason why he and Paul chose Cyprus as the first stop on their first missionary journey. His nickname, Barnabas meant son of encouragement. Scripture spells it right out there for us. It's the Greek word paraklesis. It also means exhortation. If you've ever been told that you have the gift of exhortation, based on what I know about Barnabas, you're in good company. Because son of encouragement was an apt description for one like Barnabas who was always exhorting and encouraging, and admonishing, and blessing others. But a primary reason that I believe Luke talks about Barnabas in this part of chapter 4 is not simply because he's extremely generous, which he is, but because Luke is contrasting him with two others that were in their midst. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Oh, he's going there. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. She was always late to church. (laughs) Just saying some of you are too, but I didn't say that. 
His wife came in not knowing what had happened. And, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Oh, I bet it did. You know, I I think about trying to make jokes, and I just made one, and I try to be lighthearted because this can be a very heavy topic, but the truth of the matter is, is that the Spirit of God is no joking matter. And lying to Him is certainly no joking matter. You sense the seriousness of this scene? This is New Testament, folks. Some of us might justify God as being a certain God in the Old Testament and a different one in the New. By the way, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the beginning and the end. He doesn't change. But this is no joking matter in God's eyes. The fate of these two reminds me of the Old Testament story of Achan. You might have remembered him. After the battle of Jericho that Joshua led them in, Achan ignored God's command and he kept back some of the plunder for himself, burying it in the ground under his tent. And because of Achan's sin, God's people were defeated the next time they went into battle. And they had to examine themselves and see what was going on because God lifted his blessing and hand of protection. It also resulted in Achan and his family being put to death. You know, we often think that our sin is not that serious to God, but it is. And we also think that our sin won't impact others, but it does. Sin is serious with God. Ananias and Sapphira wanted praise for their generosity. They wanted to be seen like Barnabas. But their greed caused them to hold back just a little, just a little for themselves, while letting others believe they had given it all. And that's the problem. It wasn't that they kept it back, but they represented that they hadn't. They pretended to be better than they were and posed as something they were not. And in their duplicitous duplicitous conspiracy, they lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this tell us today in 2022? Well, first of all, you can't hide from God. You can't hide your actions from God. There are no locked doors in the presence of God. He knows our thoughts. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what we do in secret. And he will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. Jesus warned back in Matthew 10 that a day was coming when every secret would be broadcast from the housetops. Do you believe that? 
Do you live like that? Every secret. And some in that day will hear the words that Daniel spoke to a Babylonian king when he said to him, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And God has numbered your days and bringing them now to an end. It's a warning to us as followers of Jesus, even in this day, that God takes seriously our sin. And when we proclaim with our lips that Jesus is Lord, but live as if he isn't, we're deceived if we think we can sneak something past him. He sees it all. Ananias and Sapphira should have known better, but they were so driven by their love for money and praise from others that they sinned against the one who owns it all and the only one whose praise really matters. There are three things I want to leave with us this morning, and I know this is heavy, and I know it can be a bit uh, daunting to consider, but I want us to hear each one of us what the Lord himself may be saying to us. I want us to be confronted with our own duplicitous behavior, our own double standards, our own desire to look good in the eyes of people and not really respecting the Lord himself. I want you to remember three things. First, the fear of the Lord is where it all starts. The fear of the Lord is where it all starts. As you can imagine, these dramatic deaths of Ananias and Sapphira caused a great deal of fear, both in the church and for all those that heard that were around watching. Because by this time, there's thousands of them gathering, going to the temple, meeting house by house, breaking bread, fellowshipping, praying, applying the apostles' teaching to their life, and miracles, my goodness, miracles, people being healed and delivered and set free. People are watching. But it caused tremendous fear. But surprisingly, that didn't stop people from believing in Jesus and being added to their number. Just a few verses later, in chapter 5, verse 14, it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So the fear was not a negative thing because God was going to stomp on them. The fear helped them understand that God is worthy and he has made a way for me to be redeemed and I don't have to be afraid. The fear of the Lord played a major part in the promotion of the church, in the advancement and the explosion of growth in the church. It always does. I think that's why John Newton wrote in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." We need a little more fear of the Lord in our lives, in our churches, in our nation, we need a little more healthy respect that he is an awesome, holy God. He is an all-consuming fire. 
And his spirit should not be lied to. This is not about lying to the pastor or to the leaders or to the apostles or to the elders. This is about lying to God. That was their sin. And how often do we do that because we don't have a healthy fear of the Lord? Tis grace that taught my heart to fear. Way too many people think God is infinitely loving and that he will never judge their sin. But that's not what the Bible teaches. About page two in the Bible, you already see that God is not only a God of love, but a God of justice, and he will judge that which is counter to his will. God is most definitely a loving God, but his love only makes sense when we know the magnificence of his glory and the power of his might. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the writer of Proverbs says. It produces in us a holy fear and reverence for the Lord, not to take it lightly, not to trample where we shouldn't, not to presume, not to take advantage, not to go in just casually because our God is a holy God. When we honor him and worship him as Lord over our lives and Lord over the world and Lord over all things, then the fear of the Lord will not only increase in us, but the awareness of our love and his love for us will increase as well. Because it's when we understand the holiness of God that we can understand how beautiful his love that he would save us. We must understand that the fear of the Lord is where it all starts. It always does. Number two, holy things cannot be taken lightly. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, had seen the mercy of God firsthand. Ananias' name, in fact, means God is merciful. Isn't that something? They'd seen the mercy of God. It's very possible that they were eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Very possible they had seen it all. And yet, despite being such recipients of such great grace, they spurned it for the praise of men and the love of money. They exchanged the glories of his power and grace for the trinkets that they could gather for themselves and bury in a hole. And they took lightly the holy things of God. And their story is a warning to us all. Third, finally, God is deadly serious about our sin. Death will occur because of sin. We die when we're in our sin. Jesus died that we could be forgiven of our sin. And if we don't receive him, we'll die in the end because of our sin. He is deadly serious about sin. It is rebellion against his created order, against his design for your life. And he is God and we are not and he gets to decide. And his love and mercy are so real, but he will judge sin. He will judge it once and for all. 
J.D. Greer says, if we're honest, many of us find God's actions here offensive. But that merely reveals our ignorance of our own sin and our ignorance of God's holiness. Instead of asking, why did they die? A better question might be, why are we still alive? Yes, God is patient with us and he is slow to anger. He is merciful. But we can't forget that God's patience is meant to lead us into repentance, not give us permission to keep on sinning. If Jesus went through the torment of the cross to redeem us, such agonizing suffering and separation from his Father, and we neglect that in pursuit of our own sin, what will we hear in the end when we face him? As the writer of Hebrews said, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So where are we today? Where do we stand? As individuals, as married couples, as families, as small groups, as a church community, as a people that wants to represent the Lord, where are we today? Are we as a church Increasingly of one heart and soul? Is the Spirit operating in our midst, in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our small groups, in our workplaces, in our schools? Is the Spirit of God leading, empowering, directing, propelling us? Are we staying in step with Him? Or are we basically hiding and hoarding and keeping a little for ourselves because we're not so sure he'll take care of us in the end? Are we trying to be like someone else rather than being tuned to Jesus, which helps us live in harmony with one another? Are we living in hypocrisy, pretending to be better than we are, Proposing as something that we're not? Are we holding things back for ourselves? Thinking we can pull one over on the Spirit? He won't know. Are we giving it our all? Everything for Jesus. Trusting Him to use what we give and take care of us in the process. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we as a church community in this year, in this culture in which we live, are going to see the kinds of things they saw in the book of Acts, it must begin with the fear of the Lord. Out of that fear of him, not afraid that he'll trample us, but fearful that we might stray from him, It will lead to a greater intimacy with him that cannot diminish our awe of him. And in that place, this tension between the two, we will see the powerful working of the Holy Spirit and we will hear the word of God saying to us in the end, well done, thou good and faithful servants. May the Lord help us to be his church. Amen. My wife is going to come and we're going to pray for you.
And I do believe today people need to be prayed for. This is not a time to look around. This is a time to look within. To see what God may be speaking to us, each one of us. And where we get it straight with the Lord. And we let him do business in our hearts. It was a hard word today, not harshly given. But what mercy and kindness of God that he started today with Will's word, that he's available to heal not just our bodies, but our thoughts, our feelings, yes. our motives. Yes. With that call first, then when he says, and your thoughts need healing, and your motives need healing, and your actions probably do too. So kind of him yeah. to start with, I'm here to make it right. Yeah. So it's okay if in the process of the word today, he pointed something out in you that isn't right. Because he isn't saying, fix yourself. That's right. Do better. Work harder. He says, agree with me about this. That's right. Come unto me. And I will wash you white as snow. That's right. One of the things that I have studied in the story of Achan in the Valley of Achor comes out again in Hosea 2 where he says if you come to me in this wasteland that you've made of these messes where your thoughts are not right and your feelings are not right and your motives are messy yeah. I will make the Valley of Achor where sin abounded the door of hope. Yeah. And in that place, I will remove the idols from you. I will purify those things that have made it all muddy. I will covenant you to me forever in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. And I will be faithful to you so that you will know the Lord. Yeah, so good. Today His is promise. hard because as Chris said, God's serious. He has told us from this meeting time so many times since the beginning of the year that we have to grow up. Right. That message doesn't get any easier to hear, <laughs> but it is super consistent. I don't know about y'all, but <laughs> it is super, super consistent. And so obviously he means that. <laughs> So when I pray for us today, I'm praying first for me. I want him to heal me. Because we have a great, powerful mission that he wants to equip us for. And it starts with this. Yes. It starts in our own hearts right. to be right with him so we can be right with each other, so we can do what he's called us to do and invite other people into the kind of mercy that can fix this mess. Yes, amen. Join with us as we pray. 
Father, thank you for your mercy that is so incredibly undeserved and yet so available that you give so willingly. Father, thank you for speaking the truth to us in your perfect love. Because when you say it, it's easy for us to submit to it. Because you're right and you're true and you're kind. Father, thank you for dropping the plumb line again and yes. giving us an opportunity to line up with you in it. First individually and then as a community of believers. Mm -hmm. We want to be about our Father's business. Yes, we do. And so we ask you to search us and try us yes. and examine our hearts in every corner. Yes. Bring the Holy Spirit to bear there. Yes, Lord. That we could have the courage to lay ourselves bare before you, uh -huh. agree with you about what you find, and then follow you as you lead us in the way everlasting. Yes, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we are unfaithful. Thank you for your grace, even when we haven't been gracious. And thank you for your mercy and forgiveness. Yes, we can leave here today whole, whole and unified and full of power to be your witnesses. Yes, Lord. May it be so. Yes, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your mercy shown towards us and even sharing this story with us. It's not a weapon in your hand. It's an invitation to come back home. It's an invitation to examine our own hearts and let you examine them as well. to draw us back into the place where we can be healed and made whole. And like the prodigal son who came to his senses, finding where he was to be a pigsty, he declared aloud, I will arise and go to my father. That's where wholeness and healing is with our Father. And your invitation is for us to return to you. Yes. And so I pray for anyone that is here today that is listening, that is sensing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that, Lord, for sending him to convict us of our sin. I pray that the same Holy Spirit that brings conviction would also give us courage and faith to arise and return at once to our Father. I pray, Lord, that the enemy will not have his way in people's lives and hearts and feelings today. In fact, in the name of Jesus, I bind the work of the enemy among us. That you, Lord, would rebuke the enemy yourself like you did on behalf of the priest Joshua in Zechariah's time. And Lord, I pray that you would pull burning sticks out of the fire, that you would restore, and you would heal, and that you would make useful again in your hand 
your people for your purpose. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.